Chapter Twelve, Part Two of Etiquette. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Ellen. Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home by Emily Post. Chapter Twelve. THE WELL-APPOINTED HOUSE PART Two. THE ORGANIZATION OF A GREAT HOUSE The management of a house of greatest size is divided usually into several distinct departments, each under its separate head. The housekeeper has charge of the appearance of the house and of its contents, the manners and looks of the housemaids and parlour-maids, as well as their work in cleaning walls, floors, furniture, pictures, ornaments, books, and taking care of linen. The butler has charge of the pantry and dining-room. He engages all footmen, apportions their work, and is responsible for their appearance, manners, and efficiency. The cook is in charge of the kitchen, undercook, and kitchen-maids. The nurse and the personal maid and cook are under the direction of the lady of the house. The butler and the valet as well as the chauffeur and gardener are engaged by the gentlemen of the house. THE BUTLER The butler is not only the most important servant in every big establishment, but it is by no means unheard of for him to be in supreme command, not only as steward, but as housekeeper as well. At the worldlies, for instance, Hastings, who is actually the butler, orders all the supplies, keeps the household accounts, and engages not only the men-servants, but the housemaids, parlour-maids, and even the chef. But normally in a great house, the butler has charge of his own department only, and his own department is the dining-room and pantry, or possibly the whole parlour-floor. In all smaller establishments the butler is always the valet, and in many great ones he is valet to his employer, even though he details a footman to look after other gentlemen of the family or visitors. In a small house the butler works a great deal with his hands, and not so much with his head. In a great establishment the butler works very much with his head, and with his hands not at all. At Golden Hall, where guests come in dozens at a time, both in the house and the guest annex, his stewardship, even though there is a housekeeper, is not a job which a small man can fill. He has perhaps thirty men under him at big dinners, ten who belong under him in the house always. He has the keys to the wine-cellar and the combination of the silver-safe, the former being in this day by far the greater responsibility. He also chooses the china and glass and linen as well as the silver to be used each day, oversees the setting of the table, and the serving of all food. When there is a house-party, every breakfast-tray that leaves the pantry is first approved by him. At all meals he stands behind the chair of the lady of the house, in other words, at the head of the table. In occasional houses the butler stands at the opposite end, as he is supposed to be better able to see any directions given him. At Golden Hall the butler stands behind Mr. Gilding, but at great estates Hastings invariably stands behind Mrs. Worldly's chair, so that at the slightest turn of her head he need only take a step to be within reach of her voice. The husband, by the way, is head of the house, 
but the wife is head of the table. At tea-time he oversees the footmen who place the tea-table, put on the tea-cloth, and carry in the tea-tray, after which Hastings himself places the individual tables. When there is no dinner at home, he waits in the hall and assists Mr. Worldly into his coat, and hands him his hat and stick, which have previously been handed to the butler by one of the footmen. THE BUTLER IN A SMALLER HOUSE In a smaller house, the butler also takes charge of the wines and silver, does very much the same as the butler in the bigger house, except that he has less overseeing of others, and more work to do himself. Where he is alone, he does all the work, naturally. Where he has either one footman or a parlour-maid, he passes the main courses at the table, and his assistant passes the secondary dishes. He is also valet not only for the gentlemen of the house, but for any gentleman guests as well. WHAT THE BUTLER WEARS The butler never wears the livery of a footman, and on no account knee-breeches or powder. In the early morning he wears an ordinary sack suit, black or very dark blue, with a dark, inconspicuous tie. For luncheon or earlier, if he is on duty at the door, he wears black trousers, with grey stripes, a double-breasted, high-cut black waistcoat, and black swallow-tail coat without satin on the reverse, a white, stiff-bosomed shirt with standing collar, and a black four-in-hand tie. In fashionable houses the butler does not put on his dress suit until six o'clock. The butler's evening dress differs from that of a gentleman in a few details only. He has no braid on his trousers, and the satin on his lapels, if any, is narrower, but the most distinctive difference is that a butler wears a black waistcoat and a white lawn tie, and a gentleman always wears a white waistcoat with a white tie, or a white waistcoat and a black tie with a dinner-coat, but never the reverse. Unless he is an old-time coloured servant in the South, a butler who wears a dress suit in the daytime is either a hired waiter who has come in to serve a meal, or he has never been employed by persons of position, and it is unnecessary to add that none but vulgarians would employ a butler, or any other house-servant, who wears a moustache. To have him open the door collarless and in shirt-sleeves is scarcely worse. A butler never wears gloves nor a flower in his buttonhole. He sometimes wears a very thin watch-chain in the daytime, but none at night. He never wears a scarf-pin or any jewellery that is for ornament alone. His cuff-links should be as plain as possible, and his shirt-studs white enamel ones that look like linen. THE HOUSE FOOTMEN All house-servants who assist in waiting on the table come under the direction of the butler, and are known as footmen. One who never comes into the dining-room is known as a useful man. The duties of the footman and useful man include cleaning the dining-room, pantry, lower hall, entrance vestibule, sidewalk, attending to the furnace, carrying coal to the kitchen, wood to all the open fireplaces in the house, cleaning the windows, cleaning brasses, cleaning all boots, carrying everything that is heavy, moving furniture for the parlour-maids to clean behind it, valeting all gentlemen, sitting and waiting on table, attending the front door, telephoning and writing down messages, and, incessantly and ceaselessly, cleaning and polishing silver. In a small house the butler polishes silver, but in a very big house one of the footmen is silver specialist, and does nothing else. Nothing. 
If there is to be a party of any sort, he puts on his livery and joins the others who line the hall and bring dishes to the table, but he does not assist in setting the table or washing dishes or in cleaning anything whatsoever, except silver. The butler also usually answers the telephone. If not, it is answered by the first footman. The first footman is deputy butler. The footmen also take turns in answering the door. In houses of great ceremony like those of the worldlies and the gildings, there are always two footmen at the door if any one is to be admitted, one to open the door and the other to conduct a guest into the drawing-room. But if formal company is expected, the butler himself is in the front hall with one or two footmen at the door. THE FOOTMEN'S LIVERY People who have big houses usually choose a color for their livery and never change it. Maroon and buff, for instance, are the colors of the gildings. All their motor-cars are maroon with buff lines and cream-colored or maroon linings. The chauffeurs and outside footmen wear maroon liveries. The house footmen, for every day, wear ordinary footmen's liveries, maroon trousers and long-tailed coats with brass buttons and maroon and buff striped waistcoats. For gala occasions, Mrs. Gilding adds as many caterers' men as necessary, but they are all dressed in her full-dress livery, consisting of a court coat, which comes together at the neck in front, and then cuts away to long tails at the back. The coat is of maroon broadcloth with frogs and epaulets of black braiding. There is a small standing collar of buff cloth, and a falling cravat of pleated cream-coloured lace worn in the front. The waistcoat is of buff satin, the breeches of black satin, cream-coloured stockings, pumps, and the hair is powdered. It is first pomaded, and then thickly powdered. Wigs are never worn. Mrs. Worldly, however, compromises between the court footman and the ordinary one, and puts her footman in green cloth coats, cut like the everyday liveries, with silver buttons on which the crest is raised in relief, but adds black velvet collars and black satin waistcoats in place of the everyday striped ones, black satin knee-breeches, black silk stockings, and pumps with silver buckles, and their ordinary hair cut short. The powdered footman's court livery is, as a matter of fact, very rarely seen. Three or four houses in New York, and one or two other where, would very likely include them all. Knee-breeches are more usual, but even those are seen in none but very lavish houses. To choose servants who are naturally well-groomed is more important than putting them in smart liveries. Men must be close-shaven and have their hair well-cut, their linen must be immaculate, their shoes polished, their clothes brushed and in press, and their fingernails clean and well cared for. If a man's fingers are indelibly stained, he would better wear white cotton gloves. THE COOK The kitchen is always in charge of the cook. In a small house, or in an apartment, she is alone and has all the cooking, cleaning of kitchen and larder to do, the basement or kitchen bell to answer, and the servants' table to set, and their dishes to wash, as well as her kitchen utensils. In a bigger house, the kitchen-maid lights the kitchen-fire, and does all cleaning of kitchen and pots and pans, answers the basement bell, sets the servants' table, and washes the servants' table dishes. In a still bigger house, the second cook cooks for the servants always, and for the children sometimes, and assists the cook by preparing certain plainer portions of the meals, the cook preparing all dinner-dishes, sauces, and the more elaborate items on the menu. 
Sometimes there are two or more kitchen-maids who merely divide the greater amount of work between them. In most houses of any size the cook does all the marketing. She sees the lady of the house every morning, and submits menus for the day. In smaller houses the lady does the ordering of both supplies and menus. HOW A COOK SUBMITS THE MENU In a house of largest size, at the gildings, for instance, the chef writes in his book every evening the menus for the next day, whether there is to be company or not. None, of course, if the family are to be out for all meals. This book is sent up to Mrs. Gilding with her breakfast tray. It is a loose-leaf blank book of rather large size. The day's menu sheet is on top, but the others are left in their proper sequence underneath, so that by looking at her engagement book to see who dined with her on such a date, and then looking at the menu for that same date, she knows, if she cares to, exactly what the dinner was. If she does not like the chef's choice, she draws a pencil through and writes in something else. If she has any orders or criticisms to make, she writes them on an envelope pad, folds the page, and seals it and puts the note in the book. If the menu is to be changed, the chef rewrites it, if not the page is left as it is, and the book put in a certain place in the kitchen. The butler always goes into the kitchen shortly after the book has come down, and copies the day's menus on a pad of his own. From this he knows what table utensils will be needed. This system is not necessary in medium-sized or small houses, but where there is a great deal of entertaining it is much simpler for the butler to be able to go and see for himself than to ask the cook and forget, and ask again and the cook forget and then disturbance, because the butler did not send down the proper silver dishes or have the proper plates ready, or had others heated unnecessarily. THE KITCHEN MAID the kitchen-maids are under the direction of the cook, except one known colloquially as the hall-girl, who is supervised by the housekeeper. She is evidently a survival of the between-maid of the English house. Her sobriquet comes from the fact that she has charge of the servants' hall, or dining-room, and is in fact the waitress for them. She also takes care of the housekeeper's rooms, and carries all her meals up to her. If there is no housekeeper, the hall-girl is under the direction of the cook. THE PARLOUR-MAID The parlour-maid keeps the drawing-room and library in order. The useful man brings up the wood for the fireplaces, but the parlour-maid lays the fire. In some houses the parlour-maid takes up the breakfast-trays. In others, the butler does this himself, and then hands them to the ladies-maid, who takes them into the bedrooms. The windows and the brasses are cleaned by the useful man, and heavy furniture moved by him, so she can clean behind them. The parlour-maid assists the butler in waiting at table, and washing dishes, and takes turns with him in answering the door and the telephone. In huge houses like the worldlies and the gildings, the footmen assist the butler in the dining-room and at the door, and there is always a pantry-maid who washes dishes and cleans the pantry. THE HOUSEMAID The housemaid does all the chamber-work, cleans all silver on dressing-tables, polishes fixtures in the bathroom, in other words, takes care of the bedroom floors. In a bigger house, the head housemaid has charge of the linen, and does the bedrooms of the lady and gentleman of the house, and a few of the spare rooms. The second housemaid does the nurseries, extra spare rooms, and the servants' floor. The bigger the establishment, the more housemaids, and the work is further divided. 
The housemaid is by many people called the chambermaid. Uniforms In all houses of importance and fashion, the parlour-maid and the housemaids, and the waitress, where there is no butler, are all dressed alike. Their work-dresses are of plain cambric, and in whatever the house-colour may be, with large white aprons with high bibs, and eaten collars, but no cuffs, as they must be able to unbutton their sleeves and turn them up. Those who serve in the dining-room must always dress before lunch, and the afternoon dresses vary according to the taste and purse of the lady of the house. Where no uniforms are supplied, each maid is supposed to furnish herself with a plain black dress for afternoon, on which she wears collars and cuffs of embroidered muslin usually, always supplied her, and a small afternoon apron, with or without shoulder-straps, and with or without a cap. In very beautifully done houses, all the dresses of the maids are furnished them, the colour of the uniforms is chosen to harmonise with the dining-room. At the Gildings, Junior, for instance, where there are no men-servants because Mr. Gilding does not like them, but where the house is as perfect as a picture on the stage, the waitress and parlour-maid wear in the blue and yellow dining-room dresses of nattier blue taffeta with aprons and collars and cuffs of plain hem-stitched cream-coloured organdy that is as transparent as possible, blue stockings and patent-leather slippers with silver buckles, their hair always beautifully smooth. Sometimes they wear caps, and sometimes not, depending on the waitress's appearance. Twenty years ago every maid in a lady's house wore a cap, except the personal maid, who wore, and still does, a velvet bow, or nothing. But when every little slattern and every sloppy household had a small mat of whitish Swiss pinned somewhere on an untidy head, and was decked out in as many yards of embroidery ruffling on her apron and shoulders as her person could carry, fashionable ladies began taking caps and trimmings off, and exacting instead that clothes be good in cut, and hair be neatly arranged. A few ladies of great taste dress their manes according to individual becomingness. Some faces look well under a cap, others look the contrary. A maid whose hair is rather fluffy, especially if it is dark, looks pretty in a cap, particularly of the coronet variety. No one looks well in a doily laid flat, but fluffy fair hair with a small mat tilted up against a knot of hair dressed high can look very smart. A young woman whose hair is straight and rebellious to order can be made to look tidy and even attractive in a head-dress that encircles the whole head. A good one for this purpose has a very narrow ruche from nine to eighteen inches long on either side of a long black velvet ribbon. The ruche goes part way, or all the way, around the head, and the velvet ribbon ties, with streamers hanging down the back. On the other hand, many extremely pretty young women with their hair worn flat do not look well in caps of any description, except Dutch ones, which are, in most houses, too suggestive of fancy dress. If no caps are worn, the hair must be faultlessly smooth and neat, and, of course, where two or more maids are seen together, they must be alike. It would not do to have one wear a cap, and the other not. THE LADY'S MAID a first-class lady's maid is required to be a hairdresser, a good packer, and an expert needlewoman. Her first duty is to keep her lady's clothes in order and help her dress and undress. 
She draws the bath, lays out underclothes, always brushes the lady's hair and usually dresses it, and gets out the dress to be worn, as well as the stockings, shoes, hat, veil, gloves, wrist-bag, parasol, or whatever accessories go with the dress in question. As soon as the lady is dressed, everything that has been worn is taken to the sewing-room, and each article is gone over, carefully brushed if of woolen material, cleaned if silk. Everything that is must is pressed, everything that can be suspected of not being immaculate is washed or cleaned with cleaning fluid, and when in perfect order is replaced where it belongs in the closet. Underclothes, as mended, are put into the clothes-hamper. Stockings are looked over for rips or small holes, and the maid usually washes very fine stockings herself, also lace collars or small pieces of lace trimming. Some maids have to wait up at night, no matter how late, until their ladies return, but as many, if not more, are never asked to wait longer than a certain hour. But the maid for a debutante in the height of the season, between the inevitable go-fetching at this place and that, and mending of party dresses danced to ribbons and soiled by partners' hands on the back, and slippers walked on until there is quite as much black part as satin or metal, has no sinecure. Why two maids? In very important houses, where mother and daughters go out a great deal, there are usually two maids, one for the mother, and one for the daughters. But, even in moderate households, it is seldom practical for a debutante and her mother to share a maid, at least during the height of the season. That a maid who has to go out night after night for weeks and even months on end, and sit in the dressing-rooms at balls until four and five and even six in the morning, is then allowed to go to bed and sleep until luncheon, is merely humane and it can easily be seen that it is more likely that she will need the help of a seamstress to refurbish dance-frocks than that she will have any time to devote to her young lady's mother who in mid-season therefore is forced to have a maid of her own ridiculous as it sounds that two maids for two ladies should be necessary sometimes this is overcome by engaging an especial maid by the evening to go to parties and wait and bring the debutante home again and the maid at home can then be made for two. Dress of a lady's maid A lady's maid wears a black skirt, a laundered white waist, and a small white apron, the band of which buttons in the back. In travelling, a lady's maid always wears a small black silk apron, and some maids wear black taffeta ones always. In the afternoon, she puts on a black waist with white collar and cuffs. Mrs. Gilding, Jr., puts her maid in black taffeta with embroidered collar and cuffs. For company occasions, when she waits in the dressing-room, she wears light grey taffeta with a very small embroidered mull apron with a narrow black velvet waist-ribbon, and collar and cuffs of mull to match, which is extremely pretty, but also extremely extravagant. The Valet pronounced valet, not valet, is what Beau Brummel called a gentleman's gentleman. His duties are exactly the same as those of the lady's maid, except that he does not sew. He keeps his employer's clothes in perfect order, brushes, cleans, and presses everything as soon as it has been worn, even if only for a few moments. He lays out the clothes to be put on, puts away everything that is a personal belonging. Some gentlemen like their valet to help them dress, run the bath, shave them, and hold each article in readiness as it is to be put on. 
but most gentlemen merely like their clothes laid out for them, which means that trousers have belts or braces attached, shirts have cufflinks and studs, and waistcoat buttons are put in. The valet also unpacks the bags of any gentleman guests when they come, valets them while there, and packs them when they go. He always packs for his own gentleman, buys tickets, looks after the luggage, and makes himself generally useful as a personal attendant, whether at home or when travelling. At big dinners he is required, much against his will, to serve as a footman, in a footman's, not a butler's livery. The valet wears no livery except on such occasions. His uniform is an ordinary business suit, dark and inconspicuous in colour, with a black tie. In a bachelor's quarters a valet is often general factotum, not only valeting, but performing the services of cook, butler, and even housemaid. THE NURSE Every one knows the nurse is either the comfort or the torment of the house. Every one also knows innumerable young mothers who put up with inexcusable crankiness from a crotchety middle-aged woman because she was so wonderful to the baby. And here let it be emphasized that such a one usually turns out not to have been wonderful to the baby at all. That she does not actually abuse a helpless infant is merely granting that she is not a monster. Devotion must always be unselfish. The nurse, who is really wonderful to the baby, is pretty sure to be a person who is kind generally. In ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, the sooner a domineering nurse, old or young, is got rid of, the better. It has been the experience of many a mother whose life had been made perfectly miserable through her belief that if she dismissed the tyrant the baby would suffer, that in the end, there is always an end, the baby was quite as relieved as the rest of the family when the right sort of a kindly and humane person took the tyrant's place. It is unnecessary to add that one cannot be too particular in asking for a nurse's reference, and in never failing to get a personal one from the lady she is leaving. Not only is it necessary to have a sweet-tempered, competent and clean person, but her moral character is of utmost importance, since she is to be the constant and inseparable companion of the children whose whole lives are influenced by her example, especially where busy parents give only a small portion of time to their children. End of chapter 12, part 2